Welcome to the Musician's Journey podcast and to a new interview episode, this time with Emmy Ferguson, who talks about her new book called Iconic Composers, which is out today on the market. The music we just listened to is Emmy's own prelude in C major, which is from the album Fly the Coop, consisting of sonatas and preludes by Bach, performed by Emmy Ferguson and the Continuo Ensemble Ruckus. Before our conversation, I have a few short recommendations. First, for you who are looking for online resources for your cello practice, I have a course with videos and writings and one-on-one teaching, which you'll find on my website. Go to ragnhildvesenberg.com slash sign up. There is a link to that in the show notes. I know it's a bit difficult to catch on the ear. And with the code TMJP, you'll get 15% off. That's short for the Musician's Journey podcast, TMJP. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to ko-fi.com slash the Musician's Journey podcast. And if you want to discover new music try the playlist I put together by musicians who have been on this podcast. It's a Spotify playlist and you'll find the link in the show notes. And last but not least, as a freelancer, I work a lot on my own. I do, however, have an online community of other lonely workers uh, for mutual support and accountability. It's called The Box because we put our more or less well-defined projects into boxes in order to see them clearly and to actually finish them. If this sounds interesting to you, please go to theboxworkshop.com and with the code CELLO in caps, you'll get 30% off your first month. Now, let's enjoy the beautiful voice of today's guest, Emmy Ferguson. Later in this episode, you'll also get to hear the track called Mignon from her album Amour Cruel. My French pronunciation isn't the best. Amour Cruel. Cruel. You can read more about her albums on her website, emmyferguson.com. Uh, so, Emmy, that's, is it short for Emily or something? No, what? that's, that's it. Um, I was born in Japan, so my parents gave me a Japanese name, but it also works as a Western sort of nickname kind of thing. So it, it it's a dual function. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay. And how do I pronounce your name? Tell me how I pronounce it. Hill. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. It's hard for everyone to pronounce it who are not from here. So I I spent four years in the UK. I know you were um, you spent some time there as well. Yes, I did. Yes, and so the English version of my name is apparently Ragnhild. Oh. That works well okay. as well. <laughs> That's wor- that works well. <laughs> wow. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh. Sure. Um, Hi, my name is Emmy Ferguson, and I'm one of the co-authors of a new book for kids, Iconic Composers. I'm also a flute player. I sing a little bit. I do arranging and composing. But um, most importantly, I just love music, and so it's a pleasure to be here with you. That's so lovely to have you here. Now, 
I will get back to the book, I promise. I just, uh, I'm so curious. Can you first of all tell me, or us, how you structure your time and efforts? Because I mean, on your website, you have nine different social media icons and you are <laughs> you are a faculty member of Juilliard School and you are a performing flutist, you are a composer, writer, probably more things that I'm not aware of as well. Just how how do you how can this all be sustainable for you? How do you manage that? <laughs> that is a very good question and I wish I had a very succinct answer to it, but I think it's all of these things, they feel like they are all connected to a central hub. So that central hub is that love of music and that in interest and curiosity about all different parts of music. And so I don't feel like I have to sort of, you know, section off my time always um, because they're all connected to that, that central passion. So whether it's arranging music that I'm going to perform, um, or composing music for other people to play, or rehearsing for myself, writing about composers that I find really exciting and interesting, um, teaching the things about music that I love the most. All of them feel very connected, even though I think when you look at them, they can seem um, like lots of different things, but because they're all related to, to music, to me, they feel... Um, like they, they've got a lot of synergy, but that doesn't mean that I can't be better about structuring my time. It can be very challenging with travel um, to actually give the amount of love and care to each of those things that I want to. So I'm trying to get better at scheduling my time a little bit more so that I don't let anything, you know, slip by the wayside. And often the things that happen you know the things that go first are the things that are that we need you know practice mm. <laughs> it's easy to slip um because we're busy you know doing all these other sort of physically tangible things when that sort of um the art of of practice is actually the most important to like the holistic feeling of it all because it can be easy to not prioritize one's practice, right? So easy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, You're like, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. And then, <laughs> you know, months go by and you realize, what is happening? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm having a particular hard time these days with my that self-esteem that comes with keeping your practice up if you know what I mean you know if you yes. if you're in shape and your instrument you just have this oh, confidence of course of course I'm a musician and of course I am worth you know the the money people are paying me or whatever it is because for for a couple of months I've had an injury to one, oh, one, no. of, one of my fingers and I'm a cellist so I've had to cut down drastically on everything and it's been just a fascinating trip because it really challenges my overall self-esteem and I just have to remind myself it's quite it's probably fairly common to have these things happening and it will hopefully just be a useful experience for me and I will get out on the other side and I don't know it, it can be hard though to Look at the bright side sometimes. 
Yeah, you'll definitely get out on the other side, and, and but it doesn't make it any easier while it's happening. And it's, you know, I think half of being a musician is the mental game as well. Sort of believing in yourself, like you said, self-esteem, and, and it's, so, it's so hard. It can be so hard. It can be, yes, <laughs> absolutely. So I have been now working on my freelance musician career for only about two years. Now, I was already a cellist. That's the only thing mm. I can do on paper. But to actually... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That is not true. <laughs> oh, right. You're being very kind. But on paper, I, I can't do much more than playing the cello. Uh, but it's only been very recently that I wanted to see if I could make a living from it because I didn't want to mix music with economy. It was just not mm. tempting. But anyway, now I'm doing it. And it's a bigger world than I thought to begin with, with networking and admin and software and all kinds of things. Can you just share what you do yourself and what you are hiring others to do for you, like when it comes to accounting and managing your website and marketing and social media and all the things? Well, um, uh, most of it I do myself. Um, so I, I built, designed, managed my own website. Accounting I do, and then once a year I have a wonderful accountant who helps me file my taxes, which is very great um and other than that so far it's it's been been pretty much by myself for the book iconic composers very lucky to have a team of people with the publisher trope um who connected me with you lauren connected me with you which was really fantastic so for that um i, I feel very very fortunate and um but that's that's pretty new and slightly different from my performing career so Uh, everything to do with performing, I, I have managed by myself, but I think I'm getting to a point where uh, getting some help would be really, really useful because it would give me that time to get back to that art, you know, of, of sort of thinking about what new projects I want to do, how I can better improve my practice and spend more time with my practice. And um, it would also mean that I get to work with someone who you know, dreams up things that I didn't imagine were possible. So working with other people is, is such a gift and I'm hoping to do that more. Mm. Who would be the first you would be looking for? Um, I think someone who can think about the bigger picture, sort of looking out, you know, the next five years, 10 years and sort of how does everything connect and what are the things that excite me and how we can make that happen. Um, so sort of, I guess someone to strategize with yeah like a coach a coach or yeah um manager you know in in that kind of world someone who can kind of see the 360 sort of zoom out right. version of all of this while I'm like deep in the in the weeds yes yes and to keep you accountable absolutely yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things <laughs> yes wow because uh, yes this uh, June, right? Which will be now. I will release this just as your book comes Got out. It. Which date does it come out? Do you remember exactly? Yeah, June 13th. So on June 13th, 
Uh, you have a book coming out. Is this the first time you have a book coming out? Yes, it's the very first time for me. So it's a book you have co-authored, right, with Nicolas, how do you pronounce his surname? They pronounce it Cisco, Cisco. Um, but I think in Hungarian it would be more Cicco, but um, they're American, so it's become Americanized. Okay, Nicolas Cisco, and it's called Iconic Composers. Yeah. Yes, and I've had the privilege to receive a review copy of the book, uh, which it features 50 composers with illustrations by David Lee Cisco. Are they related? They are. Yeah. <laughs> they are. They are cousins. Right. That's beautiful. So from what I understand, this book stands out from other books, not only by the portraits of each composer, which is made by David Lee Sisko, but by the way that you have included composers who have been largely overlooked because of their sex or their race. Yeah, these are 50 composers that we love. Um, and it was, it, oh, goodness, trying to pick 50 composers was one of the hardest challenges that we had in putting this book together. Um, there are many composers in this book that people who are familiar with classical music will know. And then hopefully there are some that maybe you've heard about but don't know too much about and others who are brand new to you. But these are all incredible composers with amazing music and more importantly, incredible life stories. Um, and that's what we really tried to focus on in the book was showing that all of these composers are people. They were people who lived wonderful, fantastic lives, who struggled, um, who, who celebrated, you know, just lived in the same way that we live today um, and that they're not just sort of people on a, on a mantelpiece or in a museum, that they really were people who share so many of the same emotions that, that we go through on an everyday basis. Mm. Yes, I can imagine that huge amounts of research went into this, although there is just one page per composer, but Per page. Oh, yeah. I mean, for each page, there must have been so, so many hours of work going into that. There was, yeah. And that was also, that was the second challenge. After, you know, first choosing the 50 people that we were going to focus on, um, then boiling their lives down into 250 words was an incredible challenge um, and one that I... I, I loved and also sort of tore my hair out at, about at the same time because you're doing the research and you're learning so much more that, I mean, many of these people I knew a good amount about before, but then you do even more research and you learn even more. And the feeling that you have to just reduce it to 250 words, how do you reduce anybody to 250 words? Um, it was a challenge, but... I think we were able to capture each one of these people's personalities and what drove them to do what they did in their lives. And that was our focus was how do we, how do we make people excited enough about these people and interested that they want to go and do even more learning about them mm. and listening, of course, and listening to their music, Yeah, um, which, you know, was also a very, um, funny thing for me as a performer 
saying, here are 50 composers, but you, you're not listening to any of their music as part of this journey. Um, of course, you know, in the written word, it's, it's just a different thing than, than what I usually do, which is play music for people. And when I'm talking about a composer, I get to perform some of their music and show, you know, what that was like. So we're really excited to put together a playlist um, of, you know, one piece for each one of these 50 composers as well that hopefully introduces people to to their music and makes them lifelong lovers of that. Mm. I was very interested in, no, I was very curious about listening to these composers because there were many of them that I haven't heard of before and I just find it mind-blowing that even composers who lived uh, almost a thousand years ago uh, and several hundred years ago that their music survived long enough to be put in a recording and we can just listen to it and I think we got used to this whole internet thing too soon. I still find it mind-blowing that it's possible that I can just switch on this plastic thing that I have and just type some things, and then I can listen to a recording of a piece written in the, I don't know, 1400s. And I'm so, it's wild. And I'm supposed to be the generation who, you know, I'm, oh, all of this is totally normal, but I still feel like... One of those who are on an airplane just thinking, what is happening? What is this? Because <laughs> it's, it's just so, uh, you know, now there's so much talk about how to limit things because we get too eager, you know. How can I actually limit the input that I'm giving myself? And at the same time, then really just savor what I do expose myself to because I can't listen to all the music on the on the internet but I can at least try to listen properly to whatever I choose to spend some time on that's an art today isn't it it's very hard (laughs) to sort of be very intentional in in what your focus is it's we do have access to everything now. And yet we're still finding, you know, people that we didn't know about and music that has never been recorded. And so there are several composers in this book whose music hadn't been, hadn't had a renaissance yet, um, whose music was discovered in an old building or in an attic and now has become part of the canon. And that's really exciting to think that there are even more composers that we don't know about now, but that we might know about soon or sometime in the future. Not to mention the many, many living composers today who are creating music for us to enjoy, experience, and appreciate. Um, that you know that is so important, and we just need to encourage as many people as possible to write music if if that inspires them. How did you become involved in the project of iconic composers? So um, David Lee Sisko has a trio of books now that are in this series. There's one um, called LGBTQ plus icons and then one called science people. And so he wanted to do one um, on composers. And so what he did is he reached out to his cousin, Nicholas Sisko, um, who I've known for a very, very long time. Um, We were at Juilliard together. Um, And... 
Nick reached out to me and said, like, I'd love you to be involved with this. And, um, and so we wrote all of the bios together and David made these incredible, um, pictures, these illustrations, um, of each of the composers that really captures them, um, in a very, very fun way. Uh, and the rest is history. Here we are. (laughs) Yes. Now, as I get older, I feel I become more skeptical to what I'm reading. Um, and that y- you know yourself, having researched music history of, uh, you know, censorship or biases. I'm referring here both yes. both to the neglect of uh, female composers, for example, but also to your research into how syphilis shaped music history which I can I can get back to that later but what I'm trying to ask is after after all this research how um, uh, how can you trust a source at all you know that's a great question um, I do a lot of early music um, or uh, period performance musics uh, playing on a uh, music of Bach on instruments he might have known Um, So instruments built or modeled after ones from the 1700s. And that's a question what we often encounter is how can we really do this in the way that Bach might have done it? And the answer is we can't. We absolutely can't. Um, And that's okay. Uh, We've listened to our brains and ears know music for 300 years since then. There's no way our minds could ever be in this, our ears could ever be in the same place that Bach's were. Um, we've come very far um, in in access for different types of people. I think um, just very, for myself, like I would have never been playing the flute at that point in time. Women weren't playing the flute. Um, and so we can, I'm not being historically accurate when I'm doing it, um, (laughs) by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but what we can do is we can try and get to the spirit of what those people were trying to do. Um, and so when I'm performing Bach on a Baroque flute, my goal is to read as much as I can and there's always going to be outliers, um, but to get to that sort of core, the heart of what it is and the spirit of what that composer and the music they were making was and do my best to make that music in the same spirit. And I think the same goes for all of this. Anytime we're reading things, there will always be bias in everything. And we know that if something has survived Um, from that time that the person who was writing it had immense privilege that they had access to, um, that they could read, they could write, they had access to publishing. Um, All of that was a very, very privileged art. So we're already getting only a very small slice of opinion Hmm. from from that time. Um, But what I like to try and do is get as much of that um, that I can and then try and find like, what is that spirit? What is that like essence of that person? And I think it comes through no matter how much bias is put on because somewhere in there, even if there's a lot of hyperbole on top, it's rooted in, in someone who is living and breathing. And so I try and get back to that 
Um, Mm. No matter how much is, <laughs> how much icing is put on top of the cake, so to speak. Yeah, I actually still write letters on paper, by hand. Yes. But when I reread my letters before I send them, I'm thinking, wow, if someone were to base a biography on my oh, letters, gosh. I, you know, I, I don't know <laughs> how correct they would be, even if they take my word for things. Yeah, it's just <laughs> truth is such a funny thing. It's only a slice, right? It's only a slice of who you are, who's what's represented in that. And I mean, that is what we get for so many of these historical composers. We get a slice of who they might have been. Um, and we try to infer as much about that as we can. And then for better or worse, we also place so much of our own hopes about who they were onto that slice. Um, yeah. <laughs> someone like Bach is a great example because we don't have, we don't have a lot of firsthand um, information, but we, we, we built him into this incredible figurehead. Mm. Um, and so you, it's hard to separate the myth of the person from who the person was. And I'm not sure we ever will be able to. Um, even today, you know, we create myths about ourselves in terms of how we present ourselves on social media. Um, yeah. A lot of times, you know, that might not be, you know, who the person is. Um, it's a version of them. And think if we remind ourselves that people in the past did that as well they curated who they were for the public mm. um i think that helps put it in perspective yeah how did it work for you to write a book together did you have each your composers or it um it really depended sometimes we would you know, there were some composers that one of us knew a little bit more about, was more excited or passionate about, and we'd begin the deep dive on it. Um, and we sort of come with a draft to each other, and then we'd work from that draft and revise, revise, revise. Um, and other times we would just sit down and we'd actually write it together. And we'd be like, well, this is something that's really interesting. Can we start here? Um, and then sort of take, where did it go here? And where does it go there? And then how does it become what it is? So it was really great. Um, it was very collaborative. And it wasn't, I don't think you can go through the book and be like, or even I can't go through the book. I don't remember which ones I started and which ones Nick started because it became completely irrelevant um, because both of our fingerprints were just over over all of them, which was how it should be, I think, when you're doing a collaborative project. Um, so it was, it's great um, to have that and to have, you know, another person to be like, well, I don't know, what about this? And then you do that for them as well. And I think it gets stronger. We were very lucky to have um, some friends who volunteered to read the book um, for us as well when it was still in a draft form and give us a lot of incredible feedback that then helped us um, you know revise them and make them tighter um, make them more focused and really make them so that they were accessible to all ages 
And that's, um, that was our sort of driving force about how do we make this accessible to anybody from, you know, 12 years old to 80 years old and make them interesting and fun no matter what age you are. Mm. I can very well imagine I would really like this book if I was 12. Oh, well, I like it now as well, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. That was like, yeah. what is the book I wish I had yeah. when I was 12 that exactly. like, made me think, ooh. Yeah, yeah. It's an art to boil something down. I'm just discovering that for myself because I have a habit of thinking more is better. And that's just uh, not what I observe in myself. I really appreciate when something is more concise and I can actually take something in uh, straight away so I'm working on that in general with myself with how I'm writing you know professionally or um, yeah just what content I'm making although my podcasts tend to be longer than what most people prefer I think but uh, <laughs> that's okay I think it's great yeah <laughs> it is okay um, <laughs> Do you have more to say about the book before I change topic? Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's it was a gift to me to get to be part of this. It's not something that I was imagining I would ever do, um, but getting to think about how to how to introduce people um, to composers that have changed the world, have changed music, um, was really exciting. But not only that they were musicians and composers, that they did so many other things. And I think if you read this book, you, you meet composers who, who were multiplicitous. And that's amazing. It's just today we sort of think that we do one thing and one thing only. You're this, you're that, the other. And that wasn't the case. Music was, I think, something that was much more widely um, practiced by many, many people. And I, some of the people who are in this book were calling composers, but who would not have necessarily called themselves a composer in their lifetime. And I think that's really interesting and beautiful to see. Um, and that, you know, I just want people to go out there and experiment and write their own music. Um, I also really want to invite people to share the composers that they love that are not in this book, because there are an infinite number of composers who are not in this book. As I said before, it was just a very heartbreaking process to whittle it down to only 50 people, um, so I've been collecting a list of, of uh, you know, more iconic composers. And so I just want to encourage people, you know, send me, send me your favorite ones. I have a, a, on my website, emmyferguson.com slash iconic composers. And I have a form there where you can add additional iconic composers to the list. And my hope is that we get a list that's so big that it shows people, like, that there are composers from everywhere in the world because this again is only focusing on western classical music we you know it's just grazing the surface of what there is out there how many people there are out there making music so i i just want to encourage people to to add more and to and to write their own music as well 
And I think there was this in the past where music was so integral to, I mean, culture and community um, and everybody practiced it in some degree Mm. um, and really felt that it was a necessary and important part of their lives. And I want everybody to feel like they have the agency to make music part of their lives and the possibility, whether they are doing it professionally or not, because the more people who are sharing in music, well, it's, I think it's better for all of us. Yes. It's like you say, we are, uh, we uh, easily look at what we do as being one thing. And that's so destructive. I, I have mainly adult students, cello students, mm. and most of them are beginners. And I see it can be really hard for them to just accept that making music can also be a thing that they do in addition to the other things that they do. It's like you're either musical or not, or you're either a musician or not. It's very sad to see how ingrained this idea is in many people. And of course, many are told as children that they can't sing or they can't play or whatever it is. So yeah. I'm really for this as well.
recently listened to this short series of podcasts that you made and I loved it, uh, which is about syphilis among composers. Yeah. And it's <laughs> it's called This Composer is Sick. Yes. And uh, you just have, you have a, such a beautiful way of talking in general. I just have to say that. Have you considered having your own podcast? Oh, I mean, I would love it. Um, it's all pretty new for me. So I made the, um, that podcast last year in collaboration with uh, WQXR, which is a radio and, and media company here in, in New York City. Um, so I, I had a blast doing it. And yeah, maybe one day, but <laughs> I don't know. I've got to first learn how to schedule my life. Oh, Back to our previous conversation. <laughs> and, then, and then maybe... <laughs> Yes, right. Yes, you can make a podcast on how musicians schedule their oh lives. Oh, goodness. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> I would love to hear that. I would be your first <laughs> subscriber. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, but it, it was similar to your upcoming book in the sense that the actual content is very concise and the podcasts are fairly short. They're yeah. like less than 20 minutes each or something. Yes. But so much work also went into each one of those. You interview people, you have their voices there, and you have edited everything so smoothly. There are lots of musical excerpts. Uh, can you say something about the process of making... You did this yourself? You put it all together? Uh, well, I did it in, so I was part of this program at WQXR called the Artist Propulsion Lab. And as part of that program, they sort of say to you, dream big, what would you like to do with all the resources that WQXR and WNYC have to offer? And, um, you know, a lot of that is focused on on radio. Um, and so I came to them with this idea that I wanted to create something that allowed people a pathway into music through something completely different. Um, but also I've done a lot of work in epidemiology in the past. And um, right now where, you know, not only do we have COVID that we're contending with, but we also have a huge rise in sexually transmitted infections um, and especially in syphilis, which is a disease that is completely treatable. Um, so it's something that we just need to get more information out and is also a disease that many composers um, suffered from. And, and just people, many people um, in, in history have suffered from. And so it seemed like a, a nice sort of um, mixture of these of music, public health, um, a PSA, a public service announcement, and history. And so um, I was really fortunate that as part of the Artist Propulsion Lab, they teamed us up with an incredible production team at WQXR. And the person who I created this with is the producer, Max Fine. And he's the one who sort of really helped me on the production side of all of it. He helped arrange all the interviews. He did all the um, sort of like piecing everything together. Um, so it was very, very collaborative. Um, 
between the two of us and in, in getting this all together. And it was, it was a blast. And I was just so, so grateful to have been able to work with him and learn from him, um, about how he puts together, um, media like this. Hmm. And I loved it. I totally loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and as you said, it was a, it was a lot of research to then condense into, um, 15 minutes for each of the episodes, but, um, it was so much fun. Um, I did so many sort of deep dives, um, on the internet of like going down well this, and, and some of them ended up becoming what we focused on things that we didn't, I didn't know existed before I started out. And this is a topic that I've, I've done a lot of research on in the past and really thought about, but it al- allowed me to go into these worlds that I, I, I didn't know existed. And, and so then it was really fun to see how it all came together um, and how all four episodes of the sort of limited series um, run together and, and relate to each other. So it was, it was great. Mm. I'm really bad at doing research. Can you share something about how <laughs> you just managed to do it, stay focused and... I just get so easily distracted, I think, especially when it's online. I think that distraction is a good thing, I think, for me at least. Um, when I'm doing it, I love uh, finding those things that sort of make you go down wormholes. And you're like, oh, what's this? And then you just start digging, and then it uncovers something else, and it uncovers something else. And I think sometimes that can actually, those distractions the things that are on the out, the outliers that you're like, well, what is that? Um, that get you deeper and deeper um, into the research. So I've always followed those impulses. I've always followed the distractions because I think they, what's the worst that can happen? You take some time to learn something crazy and pretty cool. <laughs> right. And then you can always go back to the path that you started on. Um but yeah, there's just so, there's so much um, to dig into out there. And that's also what I love about the internet is that, oh my gosh, I can sit on my couch and I can go and find, you know, these newspapers from the 1800s and then find like one sentence in one newspaper that then sends me off on a completely different um, path, I think is, is just like, it's an incredible resource and completely overwhelming, um, but it's also really fun. <laughs> okay, so maybe we can add everyone can be a composer and a musician and a historian. Yeah, yeah. And hmm. I mean, just think about yourself and your family. Like you can be a historian just by writing down what you experience. And that's going back to what we were talking about with the book in that you know, there are a lot of composers that we'll never know about because they didn't have the privilege of somebody writing about them or the ability to write about themselves or the confidence to write about themselves. Mm. Um, There's so many people who have written music in history that we will never know about. Um, Does that bother you? (laughs) um, Yes. I mean, I think it's, it's heartbreaking 
to think about all the incredible music that we'll never experience and hear. Um, but there's also such magic in that mystery. The fact that we can then take that and, and we can imagine all the incredible people, you know, all the people who weren't, you know, written about, um, Mm. And all the people who yeah. were making music in traditions that didn't write it down. Like, wow, that's amazing. And I think that's also something that people, you know, can just, they could be part of history now. If they are part of a tradition of music that is passed down by ear or by, um, you know, playing from generation to generation, we all have iPhones that can record now. You can record that music making um, and preserve that art form. That's amazing. Yes. The, the, all, every single one of us has that. And whether that's everything from, you know, you making music with your friends at home to, you know, going outside and recording the sounds that you hear, whether it's birds, construction, um, you know, you name it, like those are the sounds of today. And that's so important. You know, we, we need people recording the sounds of their todays in every part of the world because it only helps enrich each one of us to be able to think about what another experience might be like. Yes, I, I completely see your point. And at the same time, I have a feeling or a, a thought of like how, how far does it go like we already have so much so much content stored here and there whether it's uh, digitally stored or paper or or audio recording or like there's just so much already so a part of me is also thinking maybe it's better to just come back to just to uh, now I'm just going to fully experience this I'm not going to think about anything but except actually experiencing what I'm doing if I'm improvising with someone making music I'm sure we can always record it but I don't know I feel a little ambivalent about it I know I I, (laughs) yeah I I I know that feeling as well um and I think that's the the thing that we all struggle now with I so I certainly struggle with you know because yes you can record it all but what does it feel like to be in the moment and um, turn everything off and just be present just be human um, and share share in that in the beauty that's around you I think it's a balance yeah it's a balance um, yeah uh, do you have practices around that do you meditate do you how do you deal with this uh, overwhelm that I'm guessing is quite common um I don't have a a set thing that I do um but sometimes I just I just like to leave my phone and go on walks and just listen um I don't I don't actually use headphones that much. So I love when I'm walking around to be able to hear all the sounds that are happening around me, especially in nature, because those are so amazing and inspiring and 
terrifying sometimes. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, that to me is, is really helpful. Um, I also like to lie in bed a really long time in the morning. <laughs> so. Oh, you do that? Oh, I, I do. That. I love hearing that. So, oh, even that's on my the... like long, you know, I spent a long time waking up. <laughs> oh, because I'm having a period now of doing just that. And, and I'm um, trying to feel good about it. Enjoy it. It's right. the best. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I'm just going through a phase, or I don't know if it's a phase or a transition or a change or whatever it is, but something is a little different these days. I usually get up very early in the morning and I'm very productive in the morning and I, it's not even an effort at all. And now I'm having these mornings where I just want to sleep until I wake up and stay in bed and... I guess I guess that's okay. It's just hard to. It's it's not my idea of being a productive, aspiring freelance musician. I think it's all right. It's, it's about right. you know it's like self care and self. Yes. You know and knowing what um, what you need and and not beating yourself up for it. Like, yeah. it's it's a good thing. <laughs> so you're saying you manage this you don't beat yourself up about things you do um I don't beat myself up about that because it's I don't think it's something I can change <laughs> I mean when I need to wake up I wake up but I I don't know I I really enjoy that part of my routine shall we say um I really like it and that's um, I'm all right with that I've come to terms with it so then do you, are you one of those who are creative in the evenings? Yeah, I do. I do love working at night, um, oh, okay. which I think definitely means that I sleep later. Yeah. Um, and I think, of course, for, for musicians as well, when, when we're performing a lot, we are trying to make sure that our energy is at its most um, potent at like 8 p.m., our whole day is focused around being the most awake and the most energetic at eight o'clock at night. And so you're, everything kind of shifts. Um, at least for me, it often shifts. And that means that on a day that I'm performing, I, yeah, I want to wake up late. I want to try and be as um, calm and um, present in my body as I possibly can be so that when 8 p.m. rolls around, I can, you know, be be right on it. Yes, because you're also a performing musician in addition to teaching and writing. Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. Um, it's been it's been really fantastic, and um, I'm actually home right now um, for the first time in in a long time, and it's it's also uh, just what a gift to be at home um, and sleep in your own bed because. It is a lot, you know, with traveling and sleeping in, in different hotels every night. But I feel so fortunate to be able to do that and to get to share um, music that I really, really love with people, you know, in so many different places. And to get to play music with, you know, so many different and wonderful musicians. It's like what I can't imagine a better job. It's, mm. it's incredible. Wow. That's amazing. Because you, your home is New York, is that right? Yes, yes. my home is New York. 
I've been there two days. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> it was in March. So we even had a day of snow and the whole city just yeah. like closed. Shut down. <laughs> yes. It was pretty scary because it reminded me of these uh, apocalyptic films where, I don't know, Statue of Liberty is like under the ice or something like that. But it seems like such a crazy, unique place. When you were saying earlier you, you love going for a walk and record nature, I thought first you would say record New York, but I guess... That, that would be, be so fun, too, because you <laughs> never know what you're going to encounter. And that's why, I mean, I love walking around New York and just observing and listening um, because there, there, are, there are people playing music everywhere. They're the most hilarious conversations. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, you can go to Central Park and you can be surrounded by birds. And... Mm. that's so cool that you can get all of these different things Um, and then you can go to you know any concert any night like there's if you want to go and hear music it's an amazing place to be and it was an amazing place to be a student Um, so I, I went to Juilliard and Juilliard's part of Lincoln Center which is a big performing arts um, sort of hub in New York City. And so you're surrounded by the Metropolitan Opera, the New York City Ballet, the New York Philharmonic, um, you know, just to name a few of, of the constituencies there. And then you have people who are coming through constantly. And so it's it was just an, an amazing place to be a student and to continue to be a, a lifelong student because um, you no matter what you want to learn or, or, um, or listen to, chances are you'll be able to. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, before, before I will wrap this up so that you can continue on your, it's a Sunday for you. It I is. Feel, I feel so honored you take some time out of your Sunday to talk to Oh, likewise. Me, talk to us. <laughs> so, um, just before uh, this call, I actually watched your TEDx talk mm. uh, called um, uh, Your Ear Deceives You. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you finish it by saying that we need to change the way uh, the performing musicians and audience interact with each other or like we, we need to change this convention this very stiff way of performing classical music where you you don't clap, you don't make any sound until the piece is over and then you can clap. And, and uh, this video on YouTube came out nine years ago, so I just wanted I know, to... it's so old now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's such a nice TEDx talk. I strongly recommend the listener to go and uh, check that out and you play some... R- beautiful flute as well but after nine years I can you share some of your ideas of how we can make this change happen well I think it's all relative um and there are some moments where we want that and then other moments where really you know having that sort of calm is very important to the music and that it doesn't matter what genre we're talking about um sometimes we just, it, it, 
you don't want noise, whether it's because the music is very quiet or because the music has a reverence to it that doesn't invite that. Um, but then other times I think like if we're in a, in a joyful place and we're experiencing music that is joyful itself, like, yeah, let's, you know, like, let's be a participant in that. Like the audience is, is what, like, we can't make music without an audience. Like that's the, I think one of the most important parts of making music is that we get to share it with other people. And, you know, if, if we're not allowed to like fully experience that as an audience person, um, I think that can be really challenging. So like last week I was playing Bach's Brandenburg five, um, which is for, you know, flute, violin, harpsichord, and um, an ensemble. And of course, the harpsichord has this amazing solo in the first movement that sounds like, like it's like a rock solo. They go crazy on the harpsichord. And um, what I loved about these performances was that the audience clapped, like right as the solo ended, because it is amazing. It's crazy. And you know what? Like, I don't think Bach would have had a problem with that. I think he would have probably been upset if someone didn't clap after a solo that magnificent. Um, because what he built into the music right after it is music you've already heard. You already heard it. So he probably did that knowing that like people would erupt in like amazement. Um, and at least that's my hope. And the same thing, like in, in a Mozart opera, you know, the, the, they're, they're so funny. If you're not laughing, um, out loud, you know, like I think Mozart would have been unhappy because that he was like very slapstick, very, very, very humorful. Um, and so I think if we're like holding ourselves back from having those reactions, we're actually not being true to what the composer's intention was or what the original um, idea for that particular piece was, because we all write music for different purposes. If you're writing music for meditation, yeah, that music probably isn't going to invite applause in the middle of the piece or maybe even at the end. It's not the purpose of it, but if it's for enjoyment, like, it, oh, sorry, that's not the right way to say it. Um, if it's, cause it's all for enjoyment. Um, yeah. if it's, if it's, if it's a different style of music where, you know, you want people to be like, you know, clapping or, or laughing, like, I think we should be free to feel that we can. Um, yeah. Now, apart from your book coming out what's next for you I am well, I have a lot of performances this summer which is great um, but I'm also working on uh, a new recording which is the going to be the music of um, Garrick Philip Telemann a Baroque composer alongside the music of um, uh, Georgi Ligeti Hungarian wow. composer yeah um, so I'm really excited um, and yeah, sort of digging deep into getting all of that music prepared right now. That's quite a task, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fun. I'm doing it with um, the, the Continuo band Ruckus, which is a group that I've worked a lot with in the past. We made an album called Fly the Coop, um, which is box music, but um, 
it's uh, his music for flute and continuo and continuo is is basically kind of like you know what modern um a jazz lead sheet might look like it's a bass line with chord figures chord symbols and so they um really improvise and it gives us a lot of of freedom in terms of what we do mm. so we're applying that same concept to both the Telemann, we're taking his flute fantasias, which are written for solo flute, but we're composing new parts for the six people who are in ruckus. Um, and then we're taking Ligeti's solo piano piece, Musica Ricercata, and rearranging that for our set of instruments. So it's these pieces, um, maybe like you've never heard them before, and we'll see. Uh, we're still in process here, but I'm, I'm really excited for it. That sounds great. And on your website, of course, you have your discography and information about the book and your concerts and all the things, right? Yes. Emmyferguson.com. Yes. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I'll link to that in the show notes. Wow. You have so many things going on. Do you drink coffee? I don't. You don't? <laughs> What's your what's your drug? Uh, sleep. Sleep. <laughs> oh, okay. See, that's why I sleep in so late. I think because I don't drink coffee. <laughs> no, I think that's great. I did a month without coffee just to break the habit, and my energy level was so stable throughout the day. It was very oh, comfortable. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Wow, it was uh, lovely talking to you. Thank you. This was such a treat and a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Feel free to give us a comment on this conversation either on Instagram where my handle is a cello way of life or on my website where this podcast is initially published. That's it for now. Take care.